0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. It is a pleasure to see you all on this gorgeous Tuesday in Atlanta, Georgia. It's got to be 60-something degrees outside. Stunning. All right, today is February 23rd, 2021, and we are studying the Torah portion of Titsava. I'm going to share my screen with you. We are going to jump right into our study. So Titsava, of course, as we know, deals with the, um, the priests and the priestly garments, hey, if you have a temple that's functioning, you got to have folks to work there, right? Somebody's got somebody's to gotta run the place. At least someone's got to facilitate the various services. That's where the kohanim, the priests come in and they had to be dressed for the task. And that's what we read about yesterday. So today we continue the conversation about the garments of the priest and the high priest. And there's so much cool stuff to talk about. And, once again, we deal with colors and fabric. You know, the, you know um, many Jews in New York back in the day were in the Shemata business. You know what the Shemata business was, right? Textiles. It goes back all the way to the beginning. Textiles has always been a thing. Take a look at what it says over here. Exodus chapter 28, verse 31. And you shall make the robe, the me'il, the robe of the aphod, Okay, so again, the aphod was like the top kind of like apron um, layer with the shoulder straps, with, the, um, with the, the, the black and marbleized stones, and then the breastplate on top of that. But under that was an aphod, was a robe, like a long robe that went down, you know, almost to the ankles of the high priest. So that aphod, robe, was to be made completely of blue wool. And you guessed it, the Hebrew word for blue wool is techelet the same word that's used right for the tzitzis for the uh, the fringes right this is not a fringe mitzvah um, although maybe that is but this is for the high priest also made of tekelet tekelet is a very this is the first time that we find tekelet used this is even before the um, articulation of the mitzvah to wear the tzitzit to wear the the the, the strings at the corners With the trailet. So this is the first time that we find the usage of this material. And we know um, that our sages tell us that it's a very spiritual material. This blue wool is super spiritual and super mystical because it reminds us, when we look at it, it reminds us of the sky. And when we look at the sky, we're reminded of the heavens. And when we look at that when we look at the sky and reminded of the heavens, it reminds us ultimately of God. Yeah, there's a few steps that we missed along the way. And of of course, God is as much here as he is in the sky. God's not really in the sky, but it just reminds us when we think of God being higher and greater and up. So it just reminds us of those themes and those concepts. All right. So this robe was made to be made out of blue wool, the trelet. Let's continue. Verse 32. It's opening at the top shall be turned inward. Its opening shall have a border around it, the work of a weaver. I'm assuming it means an inverted collar. Are you guys getting that? The top, the opening at the top should be turned inward. Kind of like instead of a collar that folds out, right? It's kind of a collar that folds in and that is um, sewed down. Does that make sense? Sort of. This is my attempt at deciphering the original command. So don't take anything as, as set in the sewing machine. All right, so um, its opening shall have a border around at the work of a weaver. It shall have an opening. Oh, take a look. It shall have an opening, like the opening of a coat of armor. There you go. It shall not be torn. So no, like, you ever see those um, those garments that have, like, a collar, but then there's, like a, like, a slice down in the middle? Kind of like, you know? So I think that's what it means. It should not be torn. The idea that it should just be a crew cut, not a v-neck, something along those lines. Something, something along those lines. Let's continue. And I, this is the part that I love. I mentioned this last night in our jewelry uh, workshop, but I love this verse. And on the bottom hem of this blue robe, this gorgeous blue robe uh, made out of wool, the bottom hem, you shall make pomegranates, like decoration, like little um, decorative uh fringe things the pomegranates should be made of blue purple and crimson wool so they're wool pomegranates and they should be placed on its bottom hem all around and golden bells in their midst all around now so you have these pomegranate i don't know what you would call them decorative um you know fabric or wool pomegranates that are hanging at the hem of this blue wool um uh, robe and golden bells and if you thought the pomegranates were you know were, were cool we also have golden bells also. so what's the deal with the golden bells? there's a dispute amongst the commentaries whether the golden bells that were in their midst means inside the pomegranates or um, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for like um, staggered between the pomegranates does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes. In other words, when you were decor, when you at the bottom fringe, at the bottom hem of this of this um, of this robe, right? W- was it pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, or were the bells inside the pomegranates? You with me on that? Yes. Anyway, the different commentaries discuss this. Let's see what Rashi says. Let's pull up. Our old friend, Rashi, the pomegranates, he says they were round and hollow, like a sort of pomegranate shaped like a hen's eggs. In case you're not sure what a pomegranate looks like, he says it's shaped like a hen's eggs. Honestly, I'm going to say, there you go. Donna's got something. Hold on. Let's see. Pomegranate. I love it. It's a pomegranate that's hollow. There you go inside it of the different the the, the (laughs) color there you go there you go so take a look take a look so rashi continues golden bells golden bells with clappers with the clappers inside them and honestly I just want to believe that Rashi meant the clapper the original nineteen eighties nineteen ninety clapper right clap on the temple you know turns the lights go on clap off but that's not what he means, obviously. These are golden bells with that little, I don't know what you call it, he calls it a clapper, but it's the uh, the bell thing. Hey, Matt, welcome. Um, Sandrine, Matt, Joy, Donna, I don't know if you formally welcome everybody. Formal welcome. All right, so we have pomegranates made out of wool, golden bells with the clappers inside, and then it says in their midst all around, take a look at Rashi's um, understanding of this. He says the bells are between them all around, meaning, Between two pomegranates, one bell was attached and suspended on the bottom hem of the robe. Which means you had pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate. Does that make sense? Alternating. So that was your decorative hem at the bottom of, those are your decorations at the bottom hem of the robe. A pomegranate, um, that was not a bell. The pomegranate was a pomegranate followed by a bell, followed by a pomegranate. But again, like I told you, there are other commentaries that have a bit of a different take and say when it says golden bells in their midst, it means the golden bells were actually placed inside those decorative pomegranates. That, good, good. So let's talk about that right now. So the question is, what's the deal with the noise, right? You would think that the high priest well, maybe they just make, want to make sure they knew where he was at all times. <laughs> There's the high priest, right? That's our tracking device. He's going wherever he goes, he's gonna be be uh, twinkling. I don't know, whatever, like ringing like um, like bells. So what's? But the, really, the question is on a serious note. What's the deal with the with the bells? Why would he be making noise while doing performing the service in the tabernacle? All right, give me one second. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. What I Let's go the into the office. Okay, so basically the question is asked, why the noise? You would think in the, in the temple, the high priest, it should be a calm and serene and spiritual environment. I mean, think of a library, right? If you come in wearing your high priest robe that you keep you know, in the back of the closet for special occasions, if you like, you know, whip out that robe situation and you're strolling through the library, people could be like, shh, it's a library. What are you doing? What's with the bells? Right? And so you would think, maybe not that the temple is a library, but what's the deal with making so much noise? I'll share with you a beautiful insight. Beautiful insight. So the Rebbe says, this is based on Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, so there are tzaddikim and non-tzaddikim. Right? They're the perfect, pure individuals that not only do the right thing, but don't even ever want to not do the right thing. In other words, pure inside and out, never a challenge, never a struggle, never a temptation. We call them tzaddikim, and they are extremely rare, extremely rare um, in every generation. Just a few. The vast majority of us are strugglers, and we try to get it right. We try to do the right thing, but it's not easy. And even when we do, the rabbi, uh, the rabbi was a tzaddikim? Yeah, we can we can we can safely assume that the rebbe was. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's extremely rare. So so it's again, it's not only doing everything right, it's Never, it's not being, it's not even wanting. So, so when we do the right thing, that's great, but inside it could be the product of some friction. And, and sometimes it goes this way, sometimes it goes that way. Hopefully it goes more the good way than the opposite. But even when it goes the good way, it doesn't mean that it was necessarily an easy process. It oftentimes is born of struggle. So the Rebbe explains that the, the sound, the, the noise of the bell represents the non Sadic, who, when serving God, it's, there's a lot of energy that it takes to do it, right? It's not an easy, it's not like, it's not effortless. It's a little bit, there's a little bit of clamoring and clanging inside. So the bell symbolizes that the high priest was carrying not just himself and representing the perfectly righteous before God in the temple, the high priest was representing everybody, including those that when they do the right thing, make a lot of noise. To give you another um, parallel example of this that's brought in Kabbalah, it says there's two types of fire. There's the fire of a log, like a log burning fire, and then there's the the fire that's of uh, of like an olive oil lamp, like an oil lamp. What's the difference? So one burns serenely, right? You You picture a lamp with olive oil, it burns calmly, serenely, it's steady, the flame is steady and it's not making noise. It's not up and down. There's no drama. You look at a campfire, right? Look at a, a wood burning fire, right? It's crackling, it's popping, it's jumping, it's noise. It, it's, 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 it's a whole experience. Kabbalah explains why. Because oil is more pure. It's a more, it's a more refined substance. Therefore, since it's more refined, since it's more edel, it's more spiritual in a sense. So it's closer to fire, closer in degree to fire. And therefore, it calmly, um, is the, it's a calm fuel. It's a, it's a, it's a fuel that, that very much is appropriate for fire. As opposed to wood, which is a very coarse substance. It's not refined. It's, you, you just hacked up a tree. That was like a combination of Yiddish and English, right? You just um, chopped up a tree and you threw it in, and now you're lighting it, right? That wood, that raw wood, unrefined, unprocessed. It's just just the wood is not it's not a pure substance. I mean, it's purely wood, but it's not it's not like a, it's not as pure as oil, and therefore the fire when it comes to conjunction in proximity to the to the wood. So the wood, in order to act as a fuel, there's a resistance there. there it, it hesitates. It's resistant. So that's why it creates drama. And it, the flame is up and down, and it's jumping, and it's, 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 it's making a dance, and psh, it sparks are released you know, once in a while. And it's, like, it's this whole dramatic scene because it's not attuned to the flame. So the oil is attuned to the flame, so it burns calmly. The wood is not attuned to the flame, so it burns chaotically. And so the same is true within human beings. Tzaddikim are very much attuned to to the fire of their soul. Everything is calm. Non-tzaddikim, i.e. pretty much everybody else. I mean everyone, right, pretty much, with the rare exception. We serve God, or sorry, ourselves, are not always so purely conducive to our soul's flame, and therefore, there's a lot of drama. To get us to do the right thing, sometimes the product of a lot of Struggle internally, right? not talking about external pressure, but internal drama and crackling and popping and all that stuff Sparks and this and that it gets a little bit dramatic. The point is that the high priest was representing everybody the noisemakers and the non-noisemakers and uh, Everybody is equally represented before God. Everyone has a place before God, which means essentially, let me just like bring it home hopefully like succinctly God loves and embraces and welcomes in His space, in His holy temple, God welcomes the good things that we do, even when we didn't want to do it, even when uh, it really took a lot of effort. And we might think, "Does God really care that I did all the effort if I somehow, on some level, didn't want to do it in the first place?" Yes, that's what the bells represent. Could walk in the, the priest walks into the holiest spaces with the bells with the noise to remind us that every good thing that we do, no matter how dramatic it was, is welcome before God. And truth is, God probably treasures the, uh, the effort even more than, than the outcome sometimes. All right, let's get back inside. So that's a bit of a mystical insight into the original bell bottoms. Let's go, wait, hold on, let me stop sharing for one more second. Let me see if I can find one moment here. Okay. Um All right. Now back to our story. This is uh, verse number 34. Verse 34. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate. <laughs> no, you're not saying twice. The Torah is repeating it cuz that's at least the simple way of understanding it, a golden bell and a pomegranate, bell and pomegranate, on the bottom hem of the robe, all around. Look at this. It shall be, this robe with those bells and pomegranates, it shall be on on Aaron when he performs the service. And, oh, Donna was saying before, and its sound shall be heard when he enters the Holy before the Lord and when he leaves. In other words, it's not like, oh, we didn't realize that it was going to make a sound. No, no, no. It's part of the intention that its sound shall be heard, so that he will not die. You know what that implies? It's a little passive aggressive right there. You know what that implies? Yeah, make sure you're wearing the robe and we can hear the noise so that you won't die. What does that imply? If he's not wearing the robe, if we're not hearing the noise, that could be problematic, right? So we see that his very um, health, his own health and well-being and the success of his service, etc., is very much attributed to um, him wearing the garments correctly and them making the sound. Let's continue. And you shall make a show plate. Now that's, that's a bit of a vague translation. Show plate means like a forehead. I don't know what you would call it. Like, um, not a crown, but like a forehead plate. Is there a word for that? Like a forehead, like a decorative forehead thing? Whatever. That's what it was. It's called the zahav, a golden Forehead plate. You shall make a show plate of pure gold. And you shall engrave upon it. Like the engraving of a seal. Holy to the Lord. These words were engraved in the gold forehead plate. Kodesh Lashem. Holy to God. Let's continue. And you shall place it. I'm going to find a a picture of all this soon. And you shall place it. um, This forehead plate, upon a cord of blue wool. So basically that's how it attaches to the head, right? So it's got like the front is gold and it's engraved. And then it has like a wool cord that attaches to the head. And it shall go over the cap and, shall be, and it shall be opposite the front side of the cap. Which means that he also wore a hat, like a bit of a, a hat that he wore. And this went over it. The straps went over it. And then it went in the front. Does that make sense at all? Am I like depicting it correctly? Yeah, sort of. You have pictures? Okay, hold on. Let me see if I can find. Let me try to open this up. See if I can find a good picture. Um, uh, High priest forehead plate. Let's do like Chabad. Make sure we get like. Good source here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Looks like we found something. Looks like we're in business, folks. Alright, let's open let's open this image in a new tab. Boom, shakalaka. I'm gonna share the screen once again. Let's look at this together. This may be what you found, maybe not, but it works for me. He looks like a nice fellow. Yeah? Looks a little surprised that the photo was being taken. A Drop. Dr- drop. I'm not, listen, I'm not. Uh. All right, it's so. Heavy too. Heavy everything, right? Yeah, it probably was. I didn't think of that, actually. It probably was. Yeah, you're wearing real gold. Yeah. Look at these shoulder stones, though. You're not going to be happy, Donna. Look at these shoulder <laughs> stones. That's not, that's not black. I'm just saying. Right. According to my calculations. But again, we, there's a lot of different... As, you, as we all know, there's a lot of variances here. But if you look at the forehead plate, you see that? It says in the Hebrew, Kodosh Hashem, holy unto God. And it kind of wraps around the front, but you see that blue, that blue cord? There was a blue cord and then there were two in the back. It actually was like one in the center and then two from the side and they all attached in the back to kind of hold it and hold down the hat. Does that make sense? I mean, you could see it, right? It's, it's kind of a cool look, I will say. I'm just going to say it's a little deeper, darker? I think it's a little bit light, yeah. Someone's gotta go into Photoshop and do some color correction on this. Yeah, we gotta do some color correction. But look, it's not, you know, it's it's a rendering. It's an artistic, uh, you know, version of it. You could see though, look at that, you could see the stones that are not square for whatever it's worth and, in this picture at least, and you kind of see the names of the tribes engraved on it a little bit. It's definitely a, a more of an artist's rendition. Oh, thank you very much. Okay. Um, let's get back into the text. All right. So we have now this forehead plate out of gold. It is engraved. Right. It is having a cord of blue wool which goes over the cap and it should be opposite the front side of the cap okay right so it's in the front forehead area it's got a cord of blue wool that goes over let's go 38 it shall be oh in case you're wondering how i knew it was a forehead plate well here we go it shall be upon aaron's forehead ta-da the big the big reveal in verse 38 (laughs) didn't see that one coming right so this this plate whatever they called it before goes on his forehead and Aaron shall bear the iniquity of the holy things that the children of Israel sanctify for all their holy gifts. It shall be, and we're going to talk about what that means bear the iniquity of the holy things. What kind of iniquity is it if it's holy things? Right? So, um, it shall be upon his forehead constantly to make them favorable before the Lord. Now, before we get to the next item, let's see if we find the Rashi on 38. Let's see what we have here. Ba ba da ba da. Here we go. Rashi basically references that even when I'm not going to get into the details, it's a long rashi, um, what it means is, and this is really a, a powerful lesson for all time, is that even in the good things that we do, there could be an admixture of negativity, right? It's Aaron shall bear the iniquity, which means the sin, of the holy things that the children of Israel sanctify. In other words, even when they're doing holy, even when we're doing holy things, even when we're doing a mitzvah. There could be a little bit of impurity involved. Like in our own experience, let's just let's just talk real. Like you do something good, maybe you feel proud about it. So there's pride, maybe there's ego, maybe there's judgment. Yeah, if I did this mitzvah, why aren't you doing this mitzvah? Who knows what it is, right? There's all sorts of things that can creep in. All sorts of traces of negativity that can creep in, even in those holy moments, right? Holy moments, Batman. Even when we're studying Torah, we might feel pride, or ego, or judgment. I know I'm circling back to those three. I don't know, whatever. But those are three that are brought in, in as examples and sources. The point is, that's what the, that's what the forehead plate was to help atone, if you will, for even those, um, quote-unquote, subtle indis- indiscretions. Donna, what is that, the Pinterest? A picture, I think, that encapsulates everything we've spoken to so far today full body look at the whole outfit. Let's go check it out. Yeah. I'm, I'm pulling it up. Ta-da, oh, that's nice. Yeah, that, that could work. I like it. So what do we have here? Yeah, there's the robe underneath, right, the blue robe. You have the apron on top. You got the sash, which we did not speak about, the, the belt that's tied in the front. We did not speak about that yet. You have the breastplate, which we did speak about, the golden chains and, cl- and clasps. We spoke about the forehead plate, which you can see, and the, the hat situation. Again. And the, the and the pomegranates. And the pomegranates and bells. How could we miss that? Yeah. If you notice, by the way, underneath the robe, there's a tunic. If you thought the, the high priest had layers, there's more layers where that comes from. There's more layers. And he's wearing pants under there. Yes, he's got pants. And then that, at least depicted here, the lighter colored thing, the blue thing, and then the top apron thing. And then gold and gold chains and a gold forehead plate and a hat. Yeah, it might have been a little, I would imagine it was kind of heavy and, and bulky and, and hot. It's talking about wool and, you know, wool everywhere. All right, so let's get back into it and let's talk about the tunic, which is right where we're up to, right? The tunic is that was that bottom right. The tunic is that bottom layer. Whoops, right. The tunic is the that full body thing. So you shall make a, the linen tunic of checker work, right? Checker work. Um, I don't know what that means exactly, but checkered work. And you shall make a linen cap, right? That's the hat. And you shall make a sash of embroidery work. I think we got that. I think we. Um, second let me stop sharing for one second let me check one other detail out Um, so yeah basically what's going on here is the Torah is kind of quickly filling us in on some of the um, the other items right the tunic the cap and the sash now that's all for the high priest. Total of eight garments. You know what, let's go back to this picture and let's see if we can find all eight garments. Starting from the bottom layer, we have the tunic. We have the, the checkered tunic on the bottom. Then we have, that's one. Then we have the robe, the blue robe. Then we have the apron, which is that also lighter colored thing. Then we have the sash, it's kind of started from bottom up. Then we have the breastplate. And then we have the forehead plate, the hat, that's seven items. And then the pants, I believe are item number eight. Pretty sure that that's not item number eight. Okay, we can't see it because it's covered by that tunic, but nonetheless. Okay, now let's jump in. For Aaron's sons, so that's for the high priest. High priest gets eight garments. What about regular priests, right? everyone else, all the other priests, for Aaron's sons, who were the original priests, you shall make tunics, so also that longer robe thing, and make them sashes, belts, and you shall make them high hats for honor and glory. And pants. Right? That's number four. So four garments for the regular priests, eight garments for the high priest. So the regular priests also get a hat. So they get Again, there's pants, there's the tunic. I don't know why I'm doing like that with a tunic, but a tunic. And then a belt and a hat. With these, you shall clothe Aaron, your brother, and his sons along with him, and you shall anoint them and invest them with full authority and sanctity so that they may serve me as kohanim. It's really a beautiful word. Invest them with full authority. In the Hebrew, it's mileta et yadam which literally means to fill their hands. So here's translated as invest them with authority, but literally means fill their hands. So it's an it's a interesting imagery, fill their hands. Um, and make for them, oh, in case uh, you were wondering where I got pants from, not literally, right? But in this discussion, verse 42 rounds it out. And make for them linen pants to cover the flesh of their nakedness. And this is both for the regular Kohanim as well as the high priest, obviously. They shall reach from the waist down to the thighs. That was the fourth and the eighth garment for the Kohanim and high priest and the Kohen Gadol, respectively, right? So we had all the stuff plus these pants, the linen pants. I believe they were white linen pants, and that's what they wore. They shall be worn by Aaron and by his sons when they enter the Tent of Meeting. All these garments. Or when they approach the altar to serve in the holy. So, again, just to clarify, because at this point, you and I understand these verses, really, hopefully understand these verses well. So, all these garments need to be worn when they enter the Tent of Meeting. That's that building. Remember the, the building inside the larger space? Or, for that matter, when they approach the altar, which was in the outer space, in the outer courtyard. But if you're doing the service, you've got to be wearing the, the uniform to serve in the holy so that they will not bear iniquity and die. Once again, it's make sure you wear it so that you don't, you know, so that nothing bad happens, implying, etc. It shall be, yeah, sure. Were there multiple high priests and how were they determined? No. One, high priest. One high priest. One high priest. So that's actually a really great question. So um, let's actually, let me just read the last verse and then we'll talk about that for a second. So it says, it shall be a perpetual statue for him and for his descents after him, for the high priest and the priests. So in other words, at any era, it wasn't just for that time, but for all time, whenever there's a temple. So this is what the, the priests and high priests would need to wear. So let's talk about um, the Who's, right? Not the Who, which is a band, I think, but the Who's. So um, the high priest, the first high priest was Aaron, and his four sons were priests, were Kohanim. There's only one high priest that is the representative of, of all the priests and does, offers one personal offering each day, and on Yom Kippur, does the entire service and otherwise oversees the operation. That's pretty much, and it's considered to be the holiest you know, representative of the people before God. So that's the role of the high priest. There's only one, and typically, well, to be a Kohen, it runs in the family. It, it's a patrilineal descent. So if your father was a Kohen, then you're a Kohen. So that's the way it works. So a high priest would essentially inherit it from either a father, I guess, or an uncle, or whatever. From, it's, it's all part of the same, ultimately ultimate part of the same family. So it would be, the, the high priest would be, was anointed by the leader. So like Moses anointed Aaron as high priest, per the word of God. And then later on, it was you know, the leader or the prophets who would anoint the high priest. So that's the way it would work, but only one high priest in each generation. Along those lines, um, unfortunately in Jewish history, it wasn't, at at the later points in time of the temple, of the second temple, things got a little bit corrupt. And um, so uh, there was a time when people, okay, toward the end of the second temple era, when the Roman Empire was kind of, making its way into things. The Roman, the Roman Empire was massive. And they just, they gobbled up just land everywhere, nations and land. They typically had a policy of, you know, we're not gonna bother you, you just have to acknowledge that we're in control and give us taxes. So they didn't wanna make everybody Roman, you know, we togas. It was just like, okay, you're under Rome, right? Yes, you're Roman, good. And you got to pay us a tribute. Done. Well, at a certain point in time, and that's what was going on toward the end of the Second Temple era. Um, at a certain point in time, the relationship got a little bit more strained Then there was more friction and things got a little bit more complicated. And the Romans started putting in officials to kind of oversee Judea, Israel, and to govern the Jewish community. And it was a slow evolution toward that. The first time that happened, it was Jews who brought them in to settle a dispute. Don't ask. There was somebody who died and then two people that were vying for for leadership not the high priest role, but for for a leadership role, and they couldn't work it out. So they said, Oh, let's bring in Rome to mediate. That was it. Once Rome got involved, they never let go. And then Rome's like, Okay, you guys can't you guys can't run your own show. You can't handle your own stuff. So we're gonna be the governors, we're gonna you know, get involved and you could still, you know, do your spiritual stuff, but we're gonna be you know, more hands-on. And once it was more hands-on, that was a, you know, that was just a snowball to the end of the temple's destruction. But along the way, part of this process was corruption was born. I mean, not born, but corruption started happening. And people would actually, Jews would bid to be the high priest and pay off Rome because at that point, Rome was appointing the high priest. You see what's going on over here? Right? Instead of it being by a prophet or by the leadership, by religious or spiritual authority, Rome got involved, and then at that point, Rome had a say in who is going to be the high priest. So there were bribes that were given, or, or I don't know bribes, payoffs to become the high priest, even though, as we see in Torah, if you're not qualified to be the high priest, not you, if one is not qualified to be the high priest and goes into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, they don't make it out. Right? You saw those verses today. If you're, not, if you're not exactly wearing the right clothes in the right way, right, The, the w- do it the right way so you don't die, implying that if you don't, you will die, right? And so somebody who's not qualified to be a high priest would not make it out of that experience, certainly not on Yom Kippur, going into the Holy of Holies with the Ark over there. They literally would tie a string. This, I'm not joking. They would tie a string around the high priest in case he didn't make it out so that no one would need to go in to retrieve a body are you with me because if you go in then it could be like you know it kind of doesn't end right everyone is checking on the other one and doesn't make it out so they put a string and if they felt they pulled and if there was no pull back after a certain amount of time they just pulled them back in here's my point this is all sort the Talmud the Talmud right that was written and recorded not long after this by the way just a few hundred years after this. So it was like, it was very fresh, these stories. The Talmud says that, I mean, not for like hundreds of years, but for a certain amount of time, every year somebody else would pay off, uh, you know, would pay to become the high priest knowing that they were not going to make it out on Yom Kippur. But they did it anyway because they wanted that experience. They wanted that spiritual high. I mean, think about it, right? It's kind, of, it's, kind of, it's kind of crazy. And there's a positive there also. As, as, like back, as crazy as it sounds, there's a positive there. People yearning for a spiritual experience knowing that they won't be able to come back from it. Like we're speaking Sunday morning about, or Thursday night, Thursday night at Tanya, about the soul being so excited that it jumps out of the body. Here was a rational decision made by people that they want to have that experience, where they're not going to come back from it. So on the one hand, it bespeaks corruption and impropriety. On the other hand, there is a positive way to look at it also. I'm not saying it was a good thing. I'm just saying, you know, we can also have a, a, a positive angle on it. All of that to say, it's all a very elaborate response to your question about how were high priests appointed and were, were there more than one. There was only one. And when times were good... And righteous, it was being appointed for uh, th- those that were appropriate were being appointed. By the way, how long did the appointment last? It was a lifetime appointment. So it was um, until the, they, they passed away. And then a new one was appointed. So again, there was a span in which every year there was a new high priest being appointed. Um, bought, sold, whatever. All right, so that is, that is regarding the high priest. Um, one other thing about the high priest is that when the high priest died, that is when all the people that were in the city of refuge who had inadvertently taken the life of another and had to go away into exile and to, you know, fix up their own, their own stuff, when the high priest ba- died, so that's when the, the ex- exilees or whatever in the, in the city of refuge would go free. So cities of refuge, more than one. Which is why it says the mother of the high priest would bring food to the people in the cities of refuge so that they wouldn't pray that her son die. Are you with me on that? You see what's going on here? When the high priest died, they would be able to go back into the community. So you can imagine they were probably hoping that he would die. So his mother, literally it says it, his mother used to go around with babka. I'm adding babka. I'm just embellishing here. Right? I'm sure they didn't have babka then. But with babka, with some kugel, some schnitzel maybe, some shwarma, who knows. Whatever whatever the uh, the taste was then to give them food. Because food always works. That's the bottom line, right? The way to a person's heart, that's it. It's through the food. So now it's a food for the Middle East. For sure, right? For sure. It's like, um, yeah, they wouldn't have any gefilte fish. They would they would throw it back at you. Yeah, they would f- gefilte fish. What is that? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't... It's so interesting because even within Sephardic food, right, there's so much of a variety. Like I, I remember there were some guys that were studying at Georgia Tech um, and they were from Panama, Panamanian, Sephardic Jews. And wow, they had their own take on stuff. I mean, these guys, when they would go to the, you know, Chabad over there by Georgia Tech, you know, not too far from here, I mean, they would be like, what is this? not even Jewish food, like what are you serving? Like, what is this? This is not Jewish food. What is it? Shabbos, what are you serving? It's just interesting, because, you know, I grew up with Ashkenazi Shabbos food, and in and, and general, Ashkenazi food. And, like, it just, you think that that is Judaism. And then you're reminded, it's a little bit more colorful than just, it's not monolithic. There were 12 tribes for a reason, right? It's about diversity of culture, experience, language, dress. But certainly, um, the high priest's mom would would bring whatever was good then and in, you know, <laughs> in palate then they would bring. By the way, speaking of food, who doesn't like speaking about food? I, I have a thought, oh, what is that? Oh, you know what? Give me one second. I may have to take this call and end, but give me one second. All right, I am back. Anyway, so I have an idea about doing a food series with um, chefs from around uh, Jewish chefs from around the country to do like a Zoom series. But we'll uh, we'll talk about that soon. All right, I got to run. I got I got that this has thing. To have samples. That has to have goodie bags. We'll have to figure out a way to do that. We'll have to like make it maybe we'll have like uh, you know, a chef team Ahabat or one person making stuff. We'll have to figure something out. All right, it's great to see you all. Yeah. I know I have, it is perfect. I wanted to do, but I have another thing. I need to be at a 1230, another class up, up. Yeah. So Thursday's in person. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe let me check the weather. Yeah. I'll check. Yeah. All right. Good. But let, I'll follow up. I'm going to send you an email soon. Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll communicate. Great to see you all. I'm going to run, um, have a wonderful day. See you for those joining tonight. We'll see you soon. All right, everybody. Take care. Bye.